Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to the 34. After a bomb explosion caused by terrorists on the British headquarters of Jerusalem, one entire corner of the King David Hotel, a building of seven stories, was razed to the ground. The stone floors were cut clean away as if they'd been hit by a thousand-pound bomb from above. Housed in the destroyed wing were the greater part of the government offices where work was in full swing at the time of the outrage. Men of the army and the police were working with cranes, bulldozers, drills and shovels to reach the unfortunate victims still buried in the wreckage. The latest casualty list included 65 killed, 47 injured and 58 missing, though it is doubtful if any of those missing are still alive. Once more, the civilized world has received a rude shock at the hands of fanatics whose wanton act is contrary to the dictates of all creeds alike and imperils the best interests of the cause that it strives to promote. Following the bomb outrage on the King David Hotel, Jerusalem comes under the most rigorous curfew in the history of the Palestine Troubles. On the stroke of six each evening, all streets are cleared by British military forces and police. Barbed wire barriers are in place at zero hour as the troops prepare for another night of vigilance in Jerusalem under curfew. New York, Friday, May 14, 1948. The United Nations General Assembly is in special session. Opposing the United Nations' decision to partition Palestine are the Arab states led by Syria's Faris al-Khuri. The Jewish representatives on the other side are waiting for their hour of destiny. The minutes of Britain's mandate are ticking to an end, but the 58 member nations are still deliberating over the future of the Holy Land. Here is Malik of Lebanon, who wants the United Nations to keep hands off. Duggan of Great Britain and Trigvali. There is no decision even as the deadline runs out. But in Tel Aviv, for the Jews of Palestine, it is a time for decision, a time to mold history for themselves. A new nation is being born. In the first Jewish city, Tel Aviv, their first Prime Minister, David Ben-Gurion, proclaims the independent Jewish state. British rule is at an end. excited to have with us on the show Jennifer Jage, who is a Palestinian rights activist who lives here in Los Angeles. And she is also a comedian and actor. I've invited her on to talk a little bit about what it's like uh, to live in the West Bank, to grow a Palestinian, and some of the issues that she's faced just trying to get her voice heard. Welcome, Jennifer. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no, it's a pleasure to have you. So we originally met because you were doing a live uh, show with Ron Placone. And I remember speaking with you briefly at that show uh, and hearing from you that your parents were from the West Bank and Palestine. And so I'd like to actually start the show off with you maybe explaining for folks. Now, imagine most Americans don't ever get to hear from an actual Palestinian that's lived these experiences. And I think there's value in it if people can hear just straight from the source what it's like uh, to have gone through these things and to still be dealing with some of the outcomes of that. So your parents lived there in the West Bank and they experienced what we would call the Nakba firsthand. So the Nakba is basically trans loosely translates into the catastrophe. And this is when 
the Ergon, the Haganah, the Stern Gang, uh, other Jewish paramilitaries uh, groups came in and basically vacated the land through acts of terrorism. So what? walk us through a little bit of, of what you have learned from your parents in regards to that and what that was like for them. Well, this is the thing. It was very much... Um, so the, the founding of the state of Israel in 1948, which was basically this uh, decision on the parts of foreign entities to carve up Palestine into several different states. And so... Uh, initially, it was supposed to be two states, uh, which right. was kind of like, oh, we'll just do a land transfer. Like, you people move over there and you move over there and then you guys can each have, you know, and it's like, oh, that's wait, a, I'm supposed to give up. That's just such a British colonial <laughs> attitude to begin with, right? Right from the get-go, right, right from jump. Right. Yes. Just just pick up and move to another part of the country and reestablish your entire life. And that, that's, that yeah. makes everything okay that... We were, you know, complicit in the Holocaust. So, um, and so essentially, uh, this resulted in um, armed violence on the part of several, uh, you know, um, Jewish gangs that came and they, cr they had several specific incidents of uh, massacres and, and depopulating depopulating villages um basically killing everyone in the village and leaving one or two people alive to say hey go to the next village and spread the word that if they don't vacate that's going to be happening to them and so this is how uh this is the founding of the jewish state and also what what palestinians deem as the catastrophe the nakba as you said and so my parents grew up um in the west bank in ramallah both of them are from the same town and ramallah was not uh the west bank at this point was not captured uh and until and occupied until 67 and so it it was a it was a kind of an in-between time. My my parents were very young. They were in their early teens. Their families were quite scared. Um, you know, our property in different parts of what was now becoming Israel, like we had orchards in, in Yaffa and we had different properties in different parts of the country. And so those were now being usurped. And um, and so it's it was just this chaotic time in the early 50s when my family didn't know what was going to happen. And there was this fear and this threat that Israel, the Israeli military forces would be coming into the West Bank and taking over the rest of, uh, you know, the West Bank forcefully in the same way, potentially, you know, with massacres as they did in the, in 48. And so at this point, I think my, my, family that at the time said, you know what, why don't we go out of Palestine for a while, um, let things cool down and we'll be back. And so my grandfather who had, um, who had basically been going back and forth to the U S working already in the thirties and forties, um, brought the family over. And what happened is that they were never allowed to return. That's right. So the Palestinians that were displaced in 1948 have never been given the right of return. Um, and uh, I think importantly, if you choose to leave, even now, the occupied West Bank, they're not going to let you come back. Uh, well, so, they make it very difficult to come back. Well, yeah. Um, and you know, they've continued the settler program. So the, set the illegal settlements in the West Bank 
as we speak, are expanding. And um, right now, the current uproar surrounds the annexation of East Jerusalem and some of the um, Palestinians that are being currently displaced there. So I don't know that folks understand what happens here. So basically what happens is these settlers show up, they decide they're taking their the, your house, your family house from you, and they take it by hook or by crook, right? Jacob, you know this is not your house. Yes, but if I go, you don't go back. So what's the problem? Why are you yelling at me? I didn't do this. I didn't do this. But well, you're you're It's you're... easy to yell at me, but I didn't do this. Yeah, you are helping. stealing my house. And if I don't steal it, someone else is going to steal it. No, no one, no one uh, 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 is allowed to steal it, yammy. And I think um, it's not it's not as if there's an option here. This is not a real estate transaction where folks are selling their houses to these settlers. They're having their houses stolen from them. And surrounding that has been a lot of settler violence. Um, a lot of, you know, this, these, these are groups of folks that are very much uh, hard right, almost fascist, uh, nationalist in, in the way they perceive uh, Zionism, right? So now you went back to uh, the West Bank. Did you go back to Ramallah in the early 2000s? Yes, I was in Ramallah in 2000. Um, I lived there. Like? Well, it was interesting. Um, there's a few things I I'm, I want to clarify. Like, okay. I went there in 2000 to, um, it was right when there was this kind of uh, illusion that there would, was going to be a Palestinian state announced and that the two-state solution would actually be, uh, be implemented. And so there, was, there were a lot of Palestinians from abroad who were coming there to live, to start businesses, to reestablish themselves, because they thought if there's going to be a Palestinian state, we want to be on the ground so that we don't get, again, kicked out and <laughs> unable to return to Palestine. Right. And so, so post-Oslo Accords then, basically? Yeah, this was in mid-2000, the, the summer of 2000. Okay. Um, and so there was a lot of reinvestment in the West Bank, a lot of financial Palestinians from abroad were financially investing, creating businesses, building um, building tons of hotels and infrastructure, um, starting companies. And it was a really exciting time when I got there. And very quickly, uh, by September, uh, I believe it was late September, is when the Intifada started as a result of, uh, of course, uh, the Israeli leader at the time decided to go, you know, to to start, uh, you know, to to create some sort of on the ground violence by entering the mosque and and Al Aqsa and compound, and so it's it's this constant instigation, yeah. which is then put onto the Palestinians as creating violence or escalating violence mm -hmm. um, when it's usually a provocation like stealing someone's home and for the Israeli Supreme Court to decide, yes, we are. it is actually fine for these settlers to take these homes of these people. And so when Palestinians then react to the inequities, the injustices that are being foisted upon them, then it's like, you know, then the media and the PR machine gears up to, you know, call this, oh, Palestinians are protesting violently and there are clashes and, you know, and so we forget the instigating incidents and we focus in the West, especially on 
the resulting, uh, you know, uh, protests. Right. And so that is something that was very clear to me when I was on the ground and I would go to protests in terms of then later that day getting on the internet and watching the coverage being like, wait a second, they never mentioned the inciting incident right. of blocking, you know, blocking access to universities and then students are protesting and then they start shooting and, uh, you know, and so it's like, oh, well, these, these students are hurling rocks at, you know, at the military for no reason. And so then it's, it's framed in this way. And so I think that's the one thing I learned on the ground. But the second thing I learned on the ground is that even during the three months that I was there, I was there for several years, but the first three months were quite peaceful, quote unquote, in terms of everything was being put into motion to establish this Palestinian state. And even during peaceful times, there were limitations. There were checkpoints. There were villages being destroyed. There were home demolitions. There were, you know, arrests with no basis and no sort of legal system in place to actually have anyone get any justice or be able to even, you know, people get arrested and never you know, never get to speak to a lawyer, never get right, to see right. their family. Well, that's actually, Jennifer, that's a really um, salient point because I don't think a lot of Americans realize this. When you're in the occupied West Bank, if you are a Palestinian in that area, you don't have access to the Israeli court system. What you are um, tried and punished under is military law, which is an entirely different thing. So that is one form of apartheid, in my opinion. The other thing is that they've carved up the West Bank in Gaza and the West Bank are on and they do this purposely. They have created all of these differentiations and variations of rights and systems that you have access to and that you are tried under H1, so h2 these different zones yeah yeah so they create these different zones in uh at that time i think it was zone a zone b zone c now it's something else it's it's constantly evolving but this is under just palestinian jurisdiction this is under only israeli jurisdiction this is the gray zone this is but you know even things under palestinian jurisdiction is what i realized on the ground that is a false Act, you know, claim that there is anything under Palestinian jurisdiction. No, it's all military occupation. Because yeah. it's completely occupied. There's a Palestinian, you know, police force that stands around, you know, pretending that holding guns and trained by Israel and acting as if they're in charge for what's going on. But anytime Israel decides, hey, we don't like what's going on over here, we're going in to arrest somebody, we're going into you know, uh, erect a new checkpoint. We're going into, you know, do ha random house arrests or demolitions or dropping a bomb on somebody's house. They don't care if it's under Palestinian jurisdiction. So I think right. what, what, what you really learn when you're on the ground is that all of these, you know, logistics and talking points and convert are all false flags. It's a military, it's a brutal, ongoing apartheid situation, a military occupation where one people are subjected, are, are subjugated, are treated like not even second class citizens, third, fourth, fifth class citizens no, that have no rights, that have no access. Um, 
and the expectation that people are going to happily live under these conditions is is, ridiculous. Yeah. is asinine. It is asinine. I mean, an, an oppressed people will fight back. That is just not a crazy statement. And Israel should come to terms with the fact that they cannot ever secure security at the end of a sword. Eventually, things um, are going to explode. Um, I wanted, you mentioned I'll ask uh, Mosque, and I want to bring that up for a second because that's also a centerpiece of what's currently uh, at the forefront of the conflict right now. And I think people need to realize that Alas Mosque is the same area as the Temple Mount, is the same area as the um, Church of the Holy Sepulchre, right? So this this is a spot that is that is not only holy for Muslims, it's holy for all of the Judaic religions. And for that reason, Jordan has had um, custody of this area since uh, 1948, I believe, I, or was it after the uh, at the second war? I'm not sure. But they've been taking care of this in hopes that having a third party, a supposed third party in charge, would um, keep it more even killed so everybody would have access to it. And right now, the notion of that's obviously very threat threatened if they annex Jerusalem. That's the end of that, right? Um, so... Well so a yes. lot of the anger that's happening right now is surrounding that. And when, was it, two weeks ago, the IDF was shooting tear gas into the mosque while, uh, while services were going on on a, on a very special holy holiday. This, to me, is, in, is one form of instigation, as you were mentioning. Um, I think another example that folks don't know about is the last excursion, excursion into Gaza in 2014. Uh, there had been a ceasefire and Hamas had been maintaining that ceasefire. They were not the ones that broke that ceasefire. Israel is. Israel broke the ceasefire and they did it the day Obama was elected. So, uh, and I think that's also by design, right? Because the first black man winning an election is obviously going to hit every front page newspaper everywhere. This is major news. Um, and so, you know, down in the little corner, I think New York Times had run a, a sort of a supplementary article saying Israel and ceasefire, blah, 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 you know. But then, you know, a week later, now it's all about Hamas rockets. It's about the fact Hamas, you know, can't uh, stop, can't maintain a ceasefire. They have to do the rockets and Israel has a right to defend itself, which is like the, the most common repeated Hasbara that exists, right? And my response to this is like, defend itself from what? The people you occupy? This isn't a war. This isn't a conflict between two um, sovereign nations. This is, this is an ongoing occupation in which you're not fulfilling your obligations as an occupier. You're being brutal. You're engaging in all kinds of egregious acts that are completely a violation of every kind of human rights um, ordinance. So uh, you're right about that. Yet here in the US media, all they talk about is what the IDF wants them to say. It's always framed um, to paint all Palestinians as terrorists and the Zionists as the good guys. So that is uh, has been an ongoing problem, and they, it, you know, the state of Israel spends a lot of money ensuring that that's the case, right? And it's not just through buying the politicians in our Congress; it's through engaging in propaganda, right? So the state of Israel runs troll farms in which they uh, will send out trolls to attack anybody that criticizes them, including leftist Jewish folks, like especially leftist Jewish folks, right? Because that's not allowed. Uh, they'll try to get people fired from jobs if they have you know, the, the audacity, so to speak, to defend Palestinian rights. So we see this, this cycle of viciousness time and time again. And it's unfortunate that 
the conversation has become so one-sided that a lot of Americans don't even question this idea that um, all Palestinians are terrorists, they're the bad guys, right? They just think that that's the case. So um, Jennifer, for you, and in, 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 as an American Palestinian and in, in that environment, uh, how do you talk to those people and how do you try to, to show them, convince them of what reality is for the Palestine, Palestinian people and how do you maybe try to win their hearts and minds over? Well, I, there's a few things I want to address. I think first and foremost, most Americans are completely unaware of the fact that Israel created and funded Hamas at the inception of Hamas. Oh, yes. Thank you for bringing and that up. And so... Yeah, 100%. True. That is something that... Israeli officials acknowledge there. Um, I actually posted on my, uh, I created this kind of info guide resource online, just a Google page. And I did post a video there and we'll put a link up. Okay. Um, it's a video from the intercept where they speak to Israeli officials who point blank say, yes, we created Hamas. We funded them. We wanted to create, and this is the divisions I was talking about. This is why there's an area A, an area C, an area B, an H1, and this, a West Bank in Gaza. This is, they attempt to separate us on religious mm -hmm. reasons. Christian Palestinians are treated differently. Oh, Palestinians yes. in Jerusalem, so Christians and Muslims are treated differently. Then Palestinians in Jerusalem have one status. Palestinians in the West Bank have a different status. Palestinians in Gaza have a different status. And then within the West Bank, there's all these specifications. So it's a divide and conquer. And I think the reason they, and they talked about in this quick, you know, I think it's an eight minute or six minute documentary or something, that the reason they funded Hamas is because they were trying to create division within Palestinian yeah. leadership. Right. And so we see this time and again that they are creating these divisions and they attempt to create divisions between Palestinians outside of Palestine, Palestinians inside of Palestine, refugees. It's this constant way to make us less powerful by making us divided. And I think what we're seeing now, which is really exciting with the advent of the, you know, the visuals on TikTok and Instagram live videos and everything going viral and being live and people being able to broadcast from anywhere from their phone is that we are now seeing the realities on the ground yeah. from all over. And there is no ability to control the narrative in the same way and divide the narrative yeah. with these different, different um, ways to, to separate Palestinians and, and try to, you know, I mean, essentially there's also tons of like, they blackmail Palestinians, gay Palestinians. They know that in Palestinian culture, homosexuality is not at this point, unfortunately, in some parts of Palestine, not all, but in some, in some societies, it's not, it's frowned upon in, and yeah. you don't want the uh, information out. And so they uh, find gay Palestinians on the ground and then they turn them into informants by threatening to ruin their life. And so it's like yeah. they use any and all tactics to exploit weaknesses. And so I think that's the number one thing. The number two thing is, um, is that these troll farms attempt to go after anyone who even advocates for for justice and equality. Right. <laughs> and so it's like any 
person in Hollywood, any person in an academic setting, any person of any professional bearing or standing, any organization doing fundraising, they attempt to go after them. I posted about a GoFundMe today from a feminist film collective that has been shut down because a whole troll army found out that they were fundraising for Palestinian um, organizations on the ground. Uh, a film organization on the ground, God forbid. And, um, and so they essentially, you know, this, this Israeli Hasbara troll, troll farm uh, army that's in place, you know, call, contacted GoFundMe, a professor, uh, not a professor, um, a, a, a young me- a doctor who just oh, yeah. started his training um, was working at a Cleveland clinic, it's his first job out of school. And he was um, suspended because of posts he had on social media. Um, and so we see this time and time again, professor, like Stephen Solid, professors being losing their positions. Um, it's been, you know, that if you speak up against Israel, if you speak up for Palestine, you know, look at Penelope Cruz. Her career was tanked once her and um, oh, Javier Bardem yeah, spoke out really about tragic. Gaza. And, uh, and really what she had said, this was in 2014, what she had said wasn't even anti-Semitic. It was just criticism of the state of Israel. But here's the thing. The Hospira for so many decades now has been um, making this conflation where, mm-hmm. where Jewish and Israeli are the one and the same. And if you criticize Israeli, you're criticizing or being anti-Semitic towards Jewish people. This to me has been one of the worst Hasbaras because in many ways it's created more anti-Semitism. But, you know, of course the uh, Zionists don't care, right? They don't care. They, all they care about is the pers- preservation of their uh, system. And, you know, we're at the point now where I just had a, this Eve Barlow uh, person who I had not come across until <laughs> a couple days ago. She was like trolling me because she was trying to tell me that that she thinks that neo-Nazis pose a bigger threat to the Jewish community than uh, leftist Jews do, which is absolutely outrageous. Like, how does that thought leave your brain? Neo-Nazis pose a larger or a smaller? Sorry, a lesser threat. Okay. Okay. uh, Leftist Jews pose a bigger problem than neo-Nazis do. She actually said this to me. And I'm like, Because these are people who believe that they have completely conflated their Judaism with Zionism, with the preservation of a Jewish state in Israel. And there is no, uh, so they have intertwined their religion with this political ideology. Yeah, that's right. Because political Zionism is not Judaism. These are two separate things. It is two very separate entities. And I would also say a lot of Zionists are atheists. They don't even believe in, they don't even follow Judaic religion. So it's like. Absolutely. But but it works very well because that then prevents anybody, if, if they can keep making the claim that that any threat to the state of Israel is a threat to Jews. Right. Then they, it shuts down yeah. the ability for anybody to point out the, uh, viol- the violence, the, the apartheid, right. the, you know, murders, the occupations, the home demolitions, everything that the state of Israel is doing yeah. cannot be pointed to. Yeah. It cannot be looked at because you're now 
anti-Semitic. And so it's this completely insane, you know, insane. It's, it's really reached a a level that's untenable. You know, I had interviewed uh, Ronnie Barkin last week and he is both Israeli and Jewish. Um, He's a Palestinian rights activist and we could not start our live stream until we removed apartheid from the title. We were blocked from live streaming. Wow. Which was like, are you serious? I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. You know what's really interesting? I just posted a couple weeks ago a um, Joe Biden was speaking in um, to the this was about I think it was in the 80s. There was a clip of Joe Biden speaking um, and he said, you know, standing up virulently for Israel and saying, look, we need Israel. If there was not an Israel we as Americans, as the American government, as the Senate, the Congress would need to create an Israel to protect our interests. Oh, so I God. think that That's, is wow. a really important thing. He said the quiet thing. part out loud. He said it out loud. <laughs> and so I think where we begin with Americans is to say this is so intimately tied the preservation of Israel is so intimately tied to our existence and our perceived existence and our perceived needs to have control of the Middle East, to have a foothold in the Middle East, to suppress any sort of, you know, uh, unionization of all the other Arab countries who might get together. This keeps all of the Middle East in place. It protects our global interests. It protects our oil interests. Uh, It, you know, allows us to continue this way of life, which is a completely ridiculous way of life and is killing the planet, essentially. But anyway, it preserves. <laughs> I know, but Jennifer, you're not wrong. I mean, they don't care. Uh, they don't give a shit about the Jewish people. What they care about is their geopolitical wants. That's what Israel is about. To Absolutely. And I, th- Absolutely. I really people would realize that. They don't give two fucks about the Jewish people. They don't care. It's a, it's well, and military. Israel doesn't give two fucks about the U.S. as long as we keep pumping the money and keeping our mouth uh, shut. Yeah, right. And so <laughs> it's a two-way street. It's, it's a, a two-way street. street. Right. It's a, mu- they, a mutually use, using relationship. Yeah. It's a two-way street where these two entities who have decided that their existence which is based on suppressing <laughs> large populations of people, controlling narratives, you know, having access to resources, creating a dominant, you know, dominance, political dominance, military dominance. So it's a mutually beneficial parasitic relationship that has been created. And so that is why we will never see the American government stepping in to give Palestinians a fair hand. And we as Palestinians know this. I have watched this happen time and again. I've watched the, you know, since I was a kid, I've watched my parents watching the news in the 80s. You know, we went to, we've been protesting. I've been protesting since I was seven years old. We've seen this with every U.S. administration. Please see what's happening. Please acknowledge what's happening. Please, you know, limit military funding. Please condition funding, cut funding, whatever we've asked for has been, you know, even uh, this Palestinian group that met with, there were a group of Palestinians that met with Blinken, I think about a week ago. Tony Blinken. And they said, they, they 
there was leaked notes from the meeting. And the in the notes, allegedly, he said, I know Palestinians are never going to get a, they're not getting a fair shake. They're not being treated well. They're not being treated justly. We get that. But they need to stop the violence. That was the statement. Stop whose violence, Tony? Stop whose violence? I mean, let's talk about that for a second, Jennifer, because this is the thing that really pisses me off the most. The settler violence is just unbearable. And I think if most Americans knew some of the things that go on in the West Bank, they would be so appalled that there would be absolutely zero support for what happens in Israel. You know, like, I remember the story of, what is it, 2016, 2017, about the kid in Hebron that was uh, killed by having gas poured down his throat and being lit up. Like, they did that to a Palestinian boy. Or, uh, you know, you can go down the list, and there's a group, um, for folks that are not familiar, I encourage you to go to uh, Bet Salem's uh, website. This is a Jewish-Israeli, very much leftist, Palestinian rights group that basically has given phone cameras to Palestinians for them to record all of these things that happened to them. So on their website, you will see just cataloged video after video after video of violence against the Palestinians that's being done by these settlers. And none of this gets any media attention in the United States. It's tragic. You know, I, I'm, I'm often curious if these leftist Jews who um, claim to be very empathetic to the plight of Palestinians but still pro-Israel. My question is, um, have you... How, first of all, how can you rectify this with your ideological and political beliefs, A? And B, are you at all aware of what's really happening on the I can answer that question for you because I went through that. You know, the first part, the part A, is you have to go through this process of losing your religion because you're you're raised in an environment where you're never ever ever allowed to question the state of israel right that's just sanctimonious that's just an untouchable thing right and it's not until you um get start to see which is part b of that right start to actually see the stuff that goes on and you have that realization like my god what is going on here this is not what i thought it was this is not what i told it was 
So there's that whole process of, you know, losing your religion. And I think that is happening here in the United States. I think a lot of leftist Jews are literally losing their religion, like seeing what Zionism has wrought and realizing like that's not what I thought it was. It's not what I'm okay with. And how can this continue? So, but, but this is, but again, this is why I think Israelis, the Hasbara patrol was so important to them and maintaining a certain status quo, because I think they knew the minute those that, you know, I think, I mean, we can go back to 1982, right? Um, So for folks that don't know about that, Israel expanded into, okay, now we're expanding into Syria, we're expanding into a whole host of other countries, Egypt, right? So it's not, it's no longer just Palestine, right? The Golan Heights were part of uh, Syria, in case folks don't know that. So we're, so Israel is now occupying, you know, several other countries. But, um, in Lebanon, uh, in the 80s, there was this horrific, horrific, I mean, I think this is, you can quantify this as genocide as far as I'm concerned. There were two Palestinian refugee camps there. And, uh, you know, Israel started bombing Beirut. Uh, there was a le- the Lebanon war. But one of the things that happened during that war was that these two camps were completely destroyed uh people uh they had allowed the the israeli army had allowed these folks to basically come in and just murder everybody in these camps i I don't know how else you frame this thing because that's really what it was right and at that particular moment in time was when for the first time you did see people in america saying whoa what's going on here this doesn't really feel like it's david versus goliath anymore it feels like israel's being the aggressor it feels like maybe they've gone too far right that was sort of when you started having a change of rhetoric and in response to that uh the israeli government actually hired ad agency people to come in and create uh, a media handbook a hospira was what which is the hebrew word for propaganda that's where this comes from right a hospira handbook this is how we're going to keep our uh image clean this is how we're going to make sure that nobody questions what we're doing so um that has just had such a lasting effect on the psyche. And in fact, there's this great movie called, or I should say it's a documentary called um, Occupation of the American Mind. Um, I don't know if you've seen that, Jennifer. Well, it started actually quite a while ago. And the reason for it is that American public opinion is so far uh, outside the bounds of world opinion when it comes to, when it comes to Israel. As as we talked before, I mean, the moment you start, you break, you start to talk about this, there's an attempt to silence you. So you're actually not allowed to, you're not allowed to talk about it. Uh, And then actually, once you do talk about it, you realize that Americans uh, have a very warped sense of the conflict. Um, I mean, I learned this from my own students, as well as from public opinion polls, that most Americans think that, in fact, it's the Palestinians who are illegally occupying someone else's land uh, um, in the Middle East. Well, talk about legally. Talk about yeah. what, in fact, is happening in the Middle East. Um, well, the, 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 it's such a clear kind of um, instance of, you know, colonization. Uh, we've just had 50 years of occupation, uh, Israel's occupation of the West Bank and, until recently, of, of Gaza. And what the and that's not that's actually very very clear because um, there's also this instant there's, Americans think it's so complicated that's actually when I talk to my students so they always oh, it's too complicated and I just actually explain to them in you know in a few sentences that this actually is a very very simple conflict um, and what and when when this conflict is that simple what you have to do is you have to make it more complicated and that's the function of public relations 
And so that's what we focused on. We focused on the public relations campaign in the United States to essentially confuse the American public about what was going on, so there would be no pressure coming from, uh, from, from the public on this. Uh, and in that sense, you know, and we say this in the film, <clears throat> um, the occupation of, of Palestine also depends upon an occupation of American public opinion. That unless the American government is aboard with this and acts as a protector of Israel, then that occupation is not possible. Let's turn to another clip from the occupation of the American mind, featuring our guest Sat Jelly. Israel can saturate the media with its spokespeople, but there's still the problem of massive Palestinian casualties showing up on television screens. You can't make those images go away. An Israeli official actually said, in the war of pictures we lose. So you need to correct, explain, or balance it in other ways. Because it really focuses on the history of how, of all this stuff that we're talking about, how how uh, they've controlled the narrative. It's all about the propaganda. So uh, and it, they do a really good job of explaining this whole thing. And they have obviously copies of WikiLeaks emails, um, internal documents from you know Israeli generals and what have you. So, uh, but you know the thing is this is what I can't understand. Like I just can't wrap my head around that this is actually where we're at. Like this, how did this even happen to begin with? Because if you go back to prior to 1947, the majority of Jewish people actually didn't support Zionism. They weren't nationalists. There was a whole robust um, ideology of leftist socialism, right? That was more common. And somehow, some way, the worm turned, right? And it became the opposite. And they oh. com convinced the majority of, of Jewish folks that this is the way to be. And I just, it's just wild to me that that's the case. Well, it's interesting because somebody said, you know, I saw this leftist Jew who posted about this and I haven't had time to investigate this further, but they said uh, Herzl isn't the isn't the um, hero that you all these Zionists make him out to be because his initial plan was everybody convert to Catholicism, forget Judaism. Oh, and I the backup, the backup, the backup plan was or occupy Palestine and may and create create the Israeli state. Wow, I didn't know that. Interesting. And so I wasn't sure. I said, is this accurate? And other people yeah. were saying that it was. I haven't had time to uh, really investigate this. But I thought that's very interesting. He was like assimilate, you know, convert and let's just end the suffering of the Jews in that way. Or ah, let's go steal Palestine. Like, <laughs> it's like, what do you, the, what are you so <laughs> so when I read that, I thought, OK, and this How is the guy that everybody's pointing to. Um, but, you know, I think the thing that people don't get in America is that the daily existence, even in yeah. peaceful times, is absolutely atrocious. Every day you need to go through this kind of cattle like turnstile to talk to a soldier who is at a, you know, at a at a point where they can actually shoot you at any moment and that you need to talk to them about how, where you're going and if you can get through a checkpoint. It's like yeah, this absolutely dystopian existence where going from one Palestinian town to another can you can be turned back you can be arrested you can be shot at you can be held uh indefinitely you can be disappeared 
you can to just traverse one town to the next. That's the most minimal, daily, invasive, insane reality yeah, on the ground. There's stories where people spend five, six hours at these checkpoints just trying to get to work. And uh, people also disappear at checkpoints. People are shot at checkpoints. People are arrested at checkpoints. If you, it's a drive-through checkpoint, uh, there was a, a Palestinian who lost control of his vehicle and was killed. And then, of course, his vehicle crashed into the checkpoint. And they said, well, he was attempting to murder Israeli soldiers. Um, there are incidences when I lived there, crossing checkpoints was very dangerous. And there were people like there were children being shot at because they were throwing stones at the, you know, the military uh, apparatus at the checkpoint, at the tower, at the soldiers. And so you could die at a checkpoint. Well, you could, when I would go through a checkpoint, there were kids who were being pulled out of the vehicle. We would be taking a public transportation vehicle and they'd be like, you, you, you come with us. And I would sometimes get out at the checkpoint and say to the soldier, where are you taking them? Where are you taking those kids? And they'd say, if you do not get back in that van and go through the checkpoint, we will shoot you. They have said this to my face. I have seen insanity and violence. I have seen children being shot at. I have been tear gassed innumerable times. I cannot tell you that the daily life of Palestinians, there is no access to, you know, the, the, your life is so such a stranglehold and a chokehold, let alone that what's happening now in East Jerusalem is that settlers from Brooklyn, from, you know, Canada, from anywhere who decided that they were making Aliyah and they were going to move to Israel because they want to become Israeli. And so not only are, are we funding <laughs> these people to move back and occupy another country, their lives are completely subsidized. Their housing, their their um, health care, all aspects of their life is completely subsidized by the Israeli government. Right. And where are they getting their funding? Oh, I don't know. From our tax dollars, where we don't have Medicare right. for all, but from, a settler from, from the, the Bronx, and U.S. donations, you know, right. who decided that he's going to occupy someone's country now is sitting pretty and having a completely subsidized life based on our tax dollars, these people have now decided that they are going to take all of East Jerusalem because they're obsessed with making Jerusalem the capital of Israel and to and to returning the temple and demolishing the uh, mosque, yeah, which if anybody is like, is this Star Wars? Like what Fruit Loops like? situation from the bible from you know some sort of weird sci-fi story are we talking about and the worst part is that not only is the israeli military siding with these people but sanctioning defending them yeah defending allowing them to commit acts of violence against civilians and i would say the idea participates uh oh so absolutely sanctions the reason these checkpoints exist is because of all of these um, illegal settlements that are, I mean, if you go through the mm -hmm. West Bank now, there's so many settlements. Like, it's crazy. Like, the, there's not, the idea of a two-state solution isn't even possible at this point, if you ask me. It's, it's no, it's a dead. That is, yeah. That's been over for decades. And the fact that we, I mean, this is the thing that is so frustrating, is that we are 
constantly given all these false flags to follow where and Palestinians are saying that's not reality. Let's talk about reality. And the Israeli, uh, you know, PR machine has been so because they're so well funded. They're so adept at spinning the story that we're never even talking about the reality on the ground. We're never even talking about what is possible. It's right now the West Bank is a completely pockmarked area where there is no contiguity between Palestinian towns, yeah. let alone certain Palestinian cities are cut off from the other half of the same city or part or the checkpoints or the wall go through the middle of a city um, or there's a settler road that's built in the middle of your city. And so they just take your land and there are settler only roads that Palestinians are not allowed to drive on. Only settlers and Israeli citizens can drive on. Yeah, only and so are allowed on those. I mean, all of this is apartheid, right? Absolutely. Um, this, Jennifer. So uh, there, I know there's a lot of factories that are there in the West Bank uh, manufacturing various goods for Israeli companies. Now, my understanding is that the Israeli court ordered that they had to abide by Israeli labor laws, but that that's not generally happening. Um, do you have any knowledge in that area? No, I don't know about that. But what I do know, of, what I do know about that is that I don't know about the laws, but I okay. do know that those factories are in settlements, which are on stolen land, which means that the BDS movement, Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions, is attempting to boycott all of those factories and all of those corporations that are operating on illegally stolen land. And I think there was a Ben and Jerry's actually And I'm not sure what happened with that. There was a soda stream. There was Ben and Jerry's. There's all of these companies that are operating. Yes, of course, Sabra, the worst hummus. Do not ever eat it, please. (laughs) God forbid. If you have any taste, if you have, I don't care what your political leanings are. If you have any sense of taste. Yeah, do not buy Sabra hummus. It's terrible. Buy Sabra hummus. It's bad. But I went um, to a store a couple weeks ago and that was like the only hummus option. I was like, nope, not buying hummus. No, you can't do it. Can't do it. But I mean, this is the thing that there are solutions, but we are never talking about them because we are constantly being sucked into talking about uh, the talking points that the Israeli PR machine wants us to be talking about. And I think that what we're seeing finally with this last incursion in Gaza several weeks ago is that the people on the ground are now creating the narrative, are now able to broadcast what is happening. And Americans, for the first time, are able to see this on TikTok, on you know Instagram, wherever. And so I feel like the shift that we are experiencing, and there has been a dramatic shift in the perception of what's happening on the ground, is a result of this. And not only that, I think that Israel is terrified because they see this reality that the narrative is shifting, which is why they're ushering in a further right candidate. Oh, Netanyahu's crazy. He's too far right. He's <laughs> Let's choose somebody even further right who brags about how many Arabs he's been able to kill, you know, who, now, you who know, has- Talk about this for a second because you're not wrong on this. Um, all right, so so Likud, which is Ben, ben uh Benjamin Netanyahu's party is Likud, and they are absolutely not even close to being the furthest right party in Israel. People in the United States that think that Likud is like this right wing like thing that's like, ah, but it's really not. 
to the right of that, you have Home Party, which is sort of neo-fascist. You have the Kahanis uh, Kosh Party. What I find really dis- just disgraceful about the current situation is Kosh, uh, the Kahanis Party, was actually outlawed by the state of Israel because they were so genocidal and violent. Uh, this was a guy who was openly advocating for uh, killing Palestinians. And in fact, one of his followers um, did go into a mosque in the West Bank and uh, engage in a mass shooting there, killing a lot of uh, Palestinians while they were worshiping. So that happened. Um, And of course, Israel's response to that was to make life harder for the Palestinians. But uh, they anyway, regardless, they did ban this party. But now Benjamin Netanyahu has welcomed these guys back into the government and into his coalition because he's trying to maintain power. Well, that's not right. going to happen. I think I think Benjamin's done. I think Netanyahu's out. And now you're right. They're going to replace him with a guy that's even further to the right. Like, this is very bad. Um, how I think that- it's bad. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, how did that happen? <laughs> Well, this is this is the Israel is increasingly becoming a fascist state. I would say it's already there, honestly. I and you know a lot of my Israeli friends that are leftists left Israel yes. for a reason. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, there is no dissent. You cannot, you know, you're called a traitor. You are treated horribly if you are at all sympathetic to Palestinians. I think what also Americans don't understand, Abby Martin did have this wonderful interviews that she did on the streets of Jerusalem, I think it was, or was it Tel Aviv, where, you know, the average Israeli is like, the best case scenario is we should, um, you know, just kind of push them all somewhere else, you know, and the worst case scenario was like, maybe we should just kill them all, you know, and this is the average man on the street is like the perception that Israelis have of Palestinians, they have, it's, they are so divorced from Palestinian humanity. They have been so brainwashed. Their society is incredibly sick. And because of that, I mean, I think this is, this is the case. This is what's going to happen. What's going to happen is we're going to get further right and further right because Israeli society is getting further right. We're going to get these complete lunatics in office. That's an inevitable outcome, though, of what Zionism is, right? Like, uh, yes. One of the the things Ronnie Barkin said to me that I thought was pretty spot on, and I hadn't really thought deeply about it until he said it, was that these uh, really hard right fascists that you're talking about, the Kahanists, he said, Tino, those are the most honest ones there are. He said, because they really are what Zionism Zionism is. They're exposing Zionism for what it is from the get go. He said the liberal Zionists are still trying to pretend it's something that it's not. Absolutely. Yeah, so he has a point. Absolutely. I think that the real face of 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 Zionism has is going to be exposed more and more to the outside world. I think that it will become definitely more there. The government will move into more extreme places. I think that is inevitable. I think that as a result of that, there will be ongoing and much worse violence enacted upon Palestinians, especially in Gaza. Um, I think we're going to see much worse than we've seen in the past, you know, 2014 and what just happened. I think it's going to get much worse for the people of Gaza, but I think that that is the only way that the world is going to wake up to the reality on the ground. Mm -hmm. And 
to actually begin to call out Israel for what it is an apartheid state and to move in the direction of what happened in South Africa. And I think the only way to do that is to expose the ongoing atrocities. Unfortunately, I guess we haven't seen enough Palestinian death. I think, you know, unfortunately, we haven't heard enough testimonies of what daily life in Palestine is actually like. Um, if you don't know, please start following some Palestinians on TikTok, on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, and see what actual real life is. But I think we're going to have a lot of dispossessions of home thefts, of settler violence. I think it's going to be much, much worse. And I think inevitably the world is going to be so horrified that there will be a shift and we will see what we saw in South Africa with apartheid, that Israel, Israel will eventually be completely alienated. And I think that they're terrified of that because they see already that we are moving in the direction. I think popular uh, conception of what's happening on the ground and of who's the aggressor and who's the oppressor has shifted much more towards reality in the past you know, decade. Uh, since I've been talking about Palestine, things have shifted dramatically. I yeah, think an incredible crackdown on anybody who dares to speak the truth. And yet people are still at this point speaking the truth, which we've never seen. That's Usually right. it was they were able to completely silence critics and they are unable well, to because, because they've there's... lost their fear. Right. And I think a lot of the here's the other thing. A lot of what what is happening with Jewish folks that are pro-Zionism, it, it is the reason they are they are um, feel this way is also based on fear. I think there's a lot of fear motivation going on on both sides. I mean, the history of anti-Semitism, pogroms, uh, the Holocaust, these things are also very much real. And when you've been told um, since you were a child that the only way to not experience those things again is to have a, a Jewish home state, and that's all you, that's the only thing that you hear, the opinion you hear and you believe that, letting go of that is a very fearful thing, to, is a very fearful experience, right? And it's unfortunate that that is where we are that that was allowed to happen because i don't think i don't think the state of israel makes jewish people safer anti-semitism exists in the world it has never stopped existing it goes on unabated in all kinds of circles i see it all the time but but israel's not changing that and in many ways in many cases i think um it, it can make it worse and i also don't think you can justify what ha what has happened to jewish folks by doing the same thing to another group of people that had nothing to do with it. Like, I just don't understand how that argument gets off the ground. Why should I feel as if I need to be genocidal towards Palestinians to make everything okay from what the Nazis did? This just doesn't make sense to me. Absolutely. And if you think about it, it's very interesting that Zionism asks Israelis and Jews, actually Jews, to toe the party line, yeah. to continue to not only re-engage with your trauma, but continue to perpetuate it as a current story to the point that they are so fearful that the rest of the world wants to, you know, enact these, tra these tragedies upon them again, that the only way to remain safe is to oppress another people. And it's a huge disservice to the evolution of the Jewish community, uh, I think it's a way to completely mind control, suppress, and continually re-traumatize a community mm -hmm. and yeah. not allow them to evolve beyond the initial trauma. 
It's you need to constantly regurgitate the Holocaust and be in fear that it will that it, it at happen. any moment yeah. can happen again. And so, and quite the, frankly, living in Los Angeles is a much safe, much safer place if you ask me. So, yeah. So the ideology of Zionism completely, continually re-traumatizes and re-victimizes Jews. Mm-hmm. And if you do not buy into that re-traumatization and re-victimization, and you step out of that and say, look. We were victimized. There is anti-Semitism. There is always the possibility of re-victimization. However, I also see what's happening on the ground of Palestine. If you have the audacity to step outside the narrative and be empathetic and humane, then you are considered a traitor. And so it's a very sick ideology if you think about it. And it really, really is unhealthy for the evolution of a community. So, yeah, so there's this uh, a new phrase that I see emerging from uh, from a lot of the leftist Jewish activists, and it's replace Zionism with humanism. Right. Because we're all human beings. And that to me is is much more in much more in line with what Judaism is to heal the world. Right. The concept of heal the world. I'm. I wanted to ask you, how, did you ever spend any time or were you ever able to go to Gaza while you were living there in the West Bank? I did actually. I did. Uh, I did spend some time in Gaza. Like. Um, again, when I went to Gaza, it was before the Second Intifada started, and it was oh, in so this it relatively. Off, as it is now. It was, well, uh, it was pretty difficult to get in. Okay. It took us. We were a, a student group visiting, and it took us hours to get through into Gaza, um, in terms of getting clearance and what we, I was there for about a week. Um, and what I remember was that a, the beauty of Gaza, the people are so resilient and the sea is just absolutely stunning. And it's, it's just beautiful there, but also the extreme poverty that was there in Gaza. We went to some refugee camps and visited different cities and different areas. And the conditions that people are living in are just absolutely heartbreaking. And imagine there are children who have been in bombed every, you know, four to six years. So their entire, you know, conception of their childhood is being, you know, things being difficult, being bombed, Everything being completely ruined and, you know, in shambles, having to rebuild and then being bombed again. The other thing about Gaza is that Gaza, nothing can come in and out of Gaza yeah, without now Israel. Yeah, because of the blockade, they can't even rebuild. Nothing can come in and out. Right. Israeli officials like to joke about putting Gaza on a diet because they, they don't let them have oh, pasta. Yeah. They don't let them have certain food items. Yeah. They don't let them, you know, there's, they refuse things. They uh, bomb UN supply stores. They, so the people in Gaza have, uh, have absolutely no control over, the, they can't leave Gaza. They can't even go into Israel to get medical treatment. Right. They are very rarely can travel through uh, Gaza to get to Egypt. Um, and so they're trapped in this tiny open air prison where they, uh, you know, their occupier has every, uh, this is what you're going to eat. This is, these are the building supplies you can have. This is how much water you can have. The, we are 
indiscriminately deciding to bomb you or indiscriminately, you know, driving in and arresting people and shooting at people and, you know, demolishing homes. And uh, and so it's this the people in Gaza are in a constant state of PTSD that they're incapable of ever getting out of until the situation on the ground changes. Yeah. No, they're trapped in there. I don't know if a lot of Americans realize that. You cannot leave Gaza. You are absolutely in an open-air prison. That's a a perfect way to describe it because the um, IDF surrounds. There's a a large wall uh, on Israel's side, obviously. There's one exit into Egypt, but that's heavily guarded. And there's also the... uh, IDF is out in the water paroling the, the, the sea. So if you get past a certain uh, amount of uh, meters, they'll, they'll fire at you. So yeah, you if you are in Gaza, you do not get to leave. And because of the state of the current blockade, they don't get building supplies in. Uh, there's a very large problem with potable water at this point because in 2014, Absolutely. they damaged the, uh, the desalination plant. So I, the way the Gazans are living is absolutely horrific and unacceptable. Absolutely. It's absolutely unacceptable. It's, you know, and this uh, Israel has decided not to uh, provide vaccinations for the Gaza or the West Bank. And so uh, you can't, it's like you can't have it always. You can't endlessly occupy a country, endlessly occupy a people you know, give them no water, no rights, no food, no. And then refuse to do the basic humanitarian, uh, provide the basic humanitarian needs. It's absolutely atrocious. And, uh, you know, I don't know how these people survive. The, the mental health in Gaza is absolutely atrocious. The level yeah, I of... Can't uh, imagine. I can't imagine um, these young kids that are in that environment that's their life it's well it's also that your life is you will unless you leave your home you will never and go to another country which isn't that easy but if you manage to get out the likelihood that you're getting back in to see your family is very slim happening and the other thing is that uh so you must you have to give up your claim and that's what their hope is that they will make people so miserable so unhappy so uncomfortable so fearful that they will flee essentially and then all of it you know uh, bennett has said unequivocally that he the that the goal is always to take over all of the land for israel yeah he from, they they do not want any Palestinian people to exist anywhere, and Israel is supposed to extend all the way into Syria. And yeah, you're right on that. That's that. At least he's being honest about what he sees the uh, Zionist project going right. But I don't. I don't. I don't. I think this at this particular junction, these guys are so insular that they don't see that 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 the support is is waning because of this, right? Absolutely. And that's the thing. Well, no, I don't agree. I think that they know the support is the support on the ground of the of, I think they sense a shift on the ground that people outside of the region of the, the Western folks are seeing what's happening and that, you know, People are speaking up and there is a shift in the dialogue. There's a shift on social media. There's a shift in the perception. I think they're very well aware of that. I think they don't, they care enough to continue to throw money at this PR machine 
to try to, you know, get regain the leverage there. But I think on another level, they feel that they are completely entitled to behave lawlessly, to behave, and they are so convinced of their right. You know, and I don't know if what that their that that their agenda, that Zionism, that the state of Israel gives them, that God, I don't know who, somebody it's, gives them the right. It's really the insularity of the environment they're in, really. The reason they believe they're entitled is because they're constantly told they're raised in an environment that tells them that. I mean, really, that was what was the interesting part for me of watching the those interviews that Abby Martin did because you really see how extreme the insularity is. Like they don't hear themselves. They don't see the problem with what they're saying, which is why they're saying it. And you're just like, wow. That's right. Like, woo. So um, my, so let's talk about something maybe more positive uh, in the sense that where I see this thing going um, eventually. Uh, I think obviously the two state solution is ridiculous. If it was ever anything to be taken seriously, it's dead now. Um, my thing is this, I, I perceive that eventually what will happen is that a country, a country will take place there, whether you call it Palestine, whether you call it Israel, whether you call it something else, but there will be a country there that is truly a democracy, which means everybody's tra- treated equally, everybody has uh, equal rights under the law, and that the Palestinians that have been displaced since 1947 absolutely have the right of return. That is what needs to happen. Um, do you think that's far-fetched? No, I think that's actually the only logical solution. And I think that, unfortunately, I it may take some time and people will suffer. Palestinians will suffer greatly until that is brought about. But, I, but uh, with the shift in the current, you know, the, the current violence against Gaza, the current, you know, absolute massacring of entire families in Gaza, the reality of what was happening really shifted a lot of people's perception. And I think that with enough, enough change on the ground, it, you know, change there will be inevitable. And I do think that the only real solution is a one state solution, a democratic, a truly democratic one state solution for everyone who considers this their homeland. Yeah. Okay, good. That's what I think, too. Um, you know, really, in 2014, I think, was the first wave of a, of a really salient shift, um, ex- particularly with the leftist Jewish community here in the United States. I think 2014 showed them so much violence that they um, really began to question their their undying support of Zionism. You begin to see people say, like, why? I've been told I'm supposed to do this, but do I really have to? Why do I have to? How does this make sense? Is this really, really the kind of thing that I want to be identified with, right? So, and I think it's just grown since then. Um, And I don't think, I think, I don't think there's turning that dial back at this point. I really don't. I think uh, that ship has finally sailed. You know, we thought, I thought maybe it would happen earlier, but, uh, but really 2014, I think is it. So we'll see what happens next. Um, any parting words uh, for our audience, uh, that you, things that you would like to share that you think Americans need to know about Palestine? I mean, I think what people need to know is, um, I think they need to f- actually listen to Palestinian voices. Yeah. I think they need to start following Palestinians on social media. I 
There are so many resources. I just threw up a quick Google site during this thing that was happening in Gaza, this, this was the latest round of violence. I think there's, you know, if you want to go there, I can post that. Um, it's yeah, on my social media. Um, if you want to recommend, absolutely. Some, um, please give us a your Twitter handle because I want to um, have folks be able to follow you. But if you have some other sites or uh, folks that you think are of interest, yeah, let's share them with the audience. Well, you know what? That helps. I do think. I think what you know. I'm at at Jen Jaja. You know, you can put that up the graphic because nobody knows how to spell that. <laughs> You can throw that up there for me, but um, I'm on that on all socials. Um, I have a link on all my socials to this Google site where we have a section called Palestine 101, which is for the uninitiated. We have a section of, you know, here's four films. Some of them are five minutes. Some of them are an hour. But if you watch a couple of these, you're going to get a sense of what's happening on the ground. Here's, you know, a list of infographics on Instagram you can click on just to have quick talking points. And so we have a whole bunch of sections. We have an action item section. We have a, a, you know, Zionism section. We have different sections that break down in more complexity. It's basically a place where we've thrown a whole bunch of resources we get and we're constantly updated. It's not fancy. It's not exciting, but well, it is exciting, but um, if you want the information, you can't find it, you know, but if you want the information, we are constantly updating, cleaning up and compiling this kind of Google list where you have access. And so it's a great place to send people who don't know. Um, And we're also updating a portion of it where who to follow on social media for information. It's going, you know, we have lists of, you know, Palestinians, on the ground and abroad. We've got news organizations, Palestinian-based news organizations, Jewish human rights organizations, Israeli human rights organizations. So it's a great resource. And like I said, we're constantly updating it and cleaning it up. It's just, it's it's a labor of love that we, a friend of mine and I have put together. But um, if people are looking for resources, that's a really good place to start. And I think listen to Palestinian voices Also, I think what I really want to stress is that the narrative for decades has been, this is a very complex situation. You can't understand it. It's, it's a, you know, a a conflict that's been going on for centuries. That's not true. true. That is is totally incorrect. This is not a religious conflict. This is not a Muslim versus, I am a Catholic Christian Palestinian. There are Palestinians of all persuasions. This has nothing to do with religion. But Israel's PR machine has framed it in a way to disempower people from having access to information. Because if you think, oh, it's just crazy and complicated and these people hate each other and it's been going on forever, I can't get involved, then that A, that's not true. And B, you can get involved. There are a lot of ways to get involved. There, you can do something as easy as sign a petition every week. You can Call your congressperson, call your senators, call people, uh, your representatives, let people know, you know, when something salient is happening to to just take two minutes to shoot an email to them. There are so many ways right now with social media. Um, There are constantly people being fired, people being sanctioned, organizations being, you know, their funding being taken away. So we're also doing an up and we're trying to update pretty regularly an action item list where 
take a minute every week and do something. You can join BDS or at least just follow BDS, which is Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions. Stop spending your money on, or, you know, on corporations that are operating in occupied territory and in, on illegal settlements. Stop, you know, organizations and, and corporations that fund the IEF. And so there's so many small ways. Tell a friend, hey, I saw this crazy five minute documentary about how Israel created Hamas. Go check it out. Send a link. Right. I feel like the, the important thing I want to leave people with that getting involved can be put something up on Twitter, just right. throw up some information. Yeah, it can take two minutes. It can be a part of your daily routine. It doesn't have to be this huge movement of I'm now an activist and I need to do all of this stuff. You can, you know, you can be involved in so many small ways. And so I just want to encourage people to, to use your voice and to educate yeah, other people. Honestly, just even learning about uh, the reality of what's going on is a huge uh, step for many Americans. I mean, let's be honest. I, I really do think if more people had a really good idea of what was going on, they wouldn't be supporting it. You know what I'm saying? I, I just, you know, how can you, how can you support this stuff? It's, it's insane. Absolutely. And you can't underestimate what seeing a friend or somebody, uh, you know, a celebrity's post about, hey, this isn't right. We can't underestimate the importance of that, those posts and, and people getting an entry into uh, something's not right. I'm not getting the truth. And I so I really encourage people to use your platforms, however large or small they are. I 100% agree. Well, thanks for um, talking with us, Jennifer. Uh